0: Would you take the Bible with me and turn today to Isaiah, the 61st chapter. Isaiah chapter 61, the Old Testament text for this third Sunday of Advent. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4, and then verses 8 through 11. If you're present with us today and you're able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word today. The Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for captives and liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God to comfort all who mourn, to provide for Zion's mourners, to give them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify himself. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore formerly deserted places. They will renew ruined cities, places deserted in generations past. Now verse eight. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and dishonesty. I will faithfully give them their wage and make with them an enduring covenant. Their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that they are a people blessed by the Lord. I surely rejoice in the Lord. My heart is joyful because of my God, because he has clothed me with clothes of victory, wrapped me in a robe of righteousness, like a bridegroom in a priestly crown, and like a bride adorned in jewelry. As the earth puts out its growth and as a garden grows its seeds, so the Lord God will grow righteousness and praise before all the nations. Again, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So Isaiah 61 is one of my favorite texts. I've actually preached it uh, to you before. Um, I think it's a central text in a couple of ways, uh, as we'll see today. It is going to grab a piece of the Old Testament, uh, earlier part of the Old Testament in the Torah, especially probably Leviticus 25. We'll come back to that in a minute. But it's also a very important text because it is a central text to the way Luke understands the ministry of Jesus. It is the text that we will talk about that Jesus grabs as he goes to the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. And he, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And in many ways, the whole Gospel of Luke is, is kind of narrated through this lens of this particular text. And so it's central, but it's not just central because of that kind of drawing of different pieces of the Scripture. But it's one of my favorite examples of what I'll call this morning prophetic imagination. Prophetic imagination. There are lots of responsibilities for the prophets, but one of the major ones is to speak with prophetic imagination. Prophetic imagination. And here's what I mean by that. The role of the prophet is to imagine a future enacted by God that in the moment appears to be closed off by reality. Let me say that again. The role of the prophet is to imagine a future enacted by God that in the moment appears to be closed off by reality. Um, I, I quote Walter Brueggemann often. Here's how Brueggemann would put that. He would say, the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. That was really well said. I said it simpler. I'll say it even simpler still. The prophet imagines the world with God-inspired eyes. If you hear nothing else today... This text is about how the prophet, and when we capture the spirit of the prophet, the prophet imagines the world with God-inspired eyes. In order to get at this text this morning, I have to talk a little bit about the Old Testament. I've shared these with you before, but I'll talk about them again, uh, because they're really central. You can't really understand Isaiah 61 without understanding some laws from the book of Leviticus in particular, but from the Torah in general. The Torah or the law has a lot to say about a lot of things, but it has a lot to say about economics, about the way that we do our life together economically. And there are a number of economic laws in the Old Testament or in the Torah, but there are four that scholars point to as probably the four central economic codes of Israel. I know you're very excited about this already. You were so excited to get to church and hear about economics of Israel. But this will, hang with me, these are really important. So these four laws kind of go like this. The first is one that we, as God's people, still live into today, and that is the law of tithing. You take 10% of everything that you grow, raise, earn, you take 10% of that, and you take that then to the temple. You take that to the storehouse of God's people, and there's an important reason for that. It's because Levites, like me, have no other marketable skills. Um, No, it's because the Levites don't own land, they don't have land, and therefore, um, they take care for the temple, and so the people bring a tenth of what they have, the Levites are able to care for their family, and the operation of the temple is able to, to take place. But there's also included in the tithing codes opportunities to care for the widows, the orphans, those on the margins. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the tithing law is every, at the end of every three years, they clean out the refrigerator, if you will. They clean out the storehouses, and they just throw a big party until it's all gone, and then they start over. But as I have said, God's people have continued to live into that law as a way of recognizing everything we have comes from God, and we are connected to this people called the body of Christ, and how do we share life together and empower the ministry of God in this community to which we belong. The second code, so we have tithing, but we also have this code called Sabbath, or the sabbatical year, where every seven days we take a day off. And it's extended in Israel not only for a day off, but every seventh year, we take a whole year off. Now, there's lots of reasons for Sabbath. There's, we need rest. Um, Sabbath is a reminder that at the end of our lives, we are not ultimately just what we did for a living, but that we are a people connected to God and living in the rhythms of that connection with God, and that's ultimately what makes us who we are Sabbath and sabbatical is a reminder that we uh, don't kind of make our way in life alone. We are dependent not only on each other, but we're dependent on creation, and creation should take a break. And we should be dominioners and caretakers of that creation, allow the creation to re- to replenish and restore. And we're not just here to wear it out like it's some kind of rental. Um, we have to care for it um, as God's place. And, and so the Sabbath creates a kind of economy of rest and care and not kind of, I I think I've shared this with you before, but one of my, um, probably my favorite political bumper sticker, it's safe to say these things now, my favorite political bumper sticker of all time was back when uh, Al Gore was running for president, and you may remember he chose Joseph Lieberman as his running mate, and it was kind of a big deal at the time because Lieberman was the first Jewish American chosen to, to be a major candidate for either political party. But I saw this bumper sticker that said, Gore Lieberman, we will work for you 24-6. I just thought that was awesome. Um, The Sabbath or sabbatical, that's kind of woven in. And then the third is the law of gleaning. that says when we're harvesting a field, we leave the corners unharvested and the edges unharvested. So on the edges of our field are all, is all this grain, all of this produce that is just sort of left there. But it's left there because in the ancient world, there's no Motel 6, no 7-Eleven, um, no Red Robin, no place to kind of stop and get what you need, no grocery store. And so wanderers, sojourners, aliens, those who've been oppressed and are moving through the land... We are already ready for them to practice hospitality. There is gleanings of the field. If you read the book of Ruth, Ruth and Naomi survive because of the gleaning law as they are moved from one place to another. And so those three laws are really important. And I, it would be wonderful, we should have conversations about how that gets kind of lived out, how the spirit of those laws can get lived out still in our life as God's people. As we not only care for this community that we belong to as God's people, as we participate in regular rest and connection and allowing the land to rest and how we think about hospitality towards the outsiders and being prepared for that. I mean, there's lots of goodness there. But the fourth law is the one that's really central to Isaiah 61, and it's found in Leviticus 25. It's the law of Jubilee. It's a law that says every seven years we take a year off, and if we have seven, you know, a complete number, seven is a good number, if we have seven cycles of those sabbaticals, we get 49, which is not a very exciting number, but 50, cool number. And so at the end of these seven completion, uh, the, the completion of these seven cycles of Sabbath, we'll blow the trumpets, which in Hebrew are called jubels. We will sound the jubel. we'll sound the trumpet, and we will proclaim a jubilee, now, here's the cool part about Jubilee. It is as though God takes the etch-a-sketch of the economy and everything that has happened over the last 49 years and shakes it really good, and we get a do-over. And everybody gets to start over. So people who are in prison, most often because of debt, get released. And people who owe debts get forgiven. And in most particularly, people who have lost their land get their land back. As I've shared with you, uh, when I used to lecture on this stuff, when I taught at SNU, it was a little easier because Oklahoma is a good kind of example of how the Jubilee law could get enacted. So in 1889, they gave Oklahoma away. Prices haven't gone up a lot, but but they just gave it away. They lined everybody up, up and they shot off a gun and everybody ran out and claimed relatively equal parcels of property. By the way, I can never tell the story without reminding you that the Sooners are the people who went out early, snuck out, and claimed property before the gun went off. I always like to say that because as much as I, I kind of like the University of Oklahoma, I do think it's appropriate that their mascot are the cheeses. Um <laughs> Folks who went out a little early. But everybody goes out and gets land. Well, historically speaking, that's 131 years ago which in the scope of history is not all that long ago. But the families who claimed that land, they do not own that land today, right? The vast majority of them. Because what happens? Well, the Dust Bowl era came along. And people lost their land and moved to California to pick oranges. And then (laughs) a couple of guys struck oil and bought up the whole state. And people then who had an ability to make life work had to find some other way to make life work. But in the ancient world where land is the only form of capital that you have, if you have no land, you have no future. And so what would happen is a dust bowl or water would run out or we would make unwise decisions and we might lose our land and somebody else has it and now we're sharecroppers on that land. But here's the cool idea of Jubilee. Say it's year 34 or so. We can say to our children, don't give up. Only 16 more years and they're going to sound the trumpets. And we'll get our land back. So don't despair. Keep having children because we're going to need some workers. Keep having children. Keep working hard. Keep flourishing because there is a do-over that is coming. And we will get to start over. Now, we know that Israel followed religiously, tithing, Sabbath, and gleaning. But as far as we know, most scholars would argue the Jubilee Law was never enacted. It just hangs there in Leviticus 25 as a really good idea, or at least a really revolutionary idea that never quite got put into action. Now, why? Well, you don't have to be super smart to figure this out. Usually, if you get to have... If you start acquiring land and you begin to build up more wealth, usually you have more power and more say in how the society operates. And the more you have that and you begin to think about having to sort of give that back or give that away, the more you think, that's a really bad idea. And the more difficult it becomes to have that kind of cultural do-over, if you will. And so what happens... By the time we get to Isaiah 61 and the people have come back into exile in Babylon and now have come out into Jerusalem, it's as though the prophets begin to look back and say, here's part of the reason we ended up in exile, because we decided to operate like all the other nations. God wanted us to be the kind of nation that would enact these moments of sort of grace, of starting over, of giving those who have no ability to get out of their poverty an opportunity to do that. That's the kind of nation we were supposed to be, but we didn't do that. And so we have fallen. We played the other game, and now we lost that game, and now we are on the bottom trying to get out, and we have no hope in the future, but God gave us a hope in the future. Woo, yay. But here they are now in the rubble of Jerusalem. Are you with me? And they get to Jerusalem, and they're so excited to get home, as we've talked about, but there's no home there. And so I can just imagine them just kind of wandering around, kicking rocks, looking at burned out old places and having no idea how in the world to start over. Where do you even start? It's a mess. God delivered us and we thought we have a future, but now we're here and we realize we have no future. There's nothing here. And so what happens The prophet grabs this idea of jubilee, stands up and says, Yo, hey, woo, ha, 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 listen up. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. Release to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. Hey, this is the year of jubilee. This is the year of the Lord's do-over. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Now, you're not very excited about that, but it was really cool. It takes prophetic imagination. Here, if you're still with me, here's what I want you to see. When the people looked at Jerusalem, all they saw was rubble, brokenness, no ability to move into a future. The prophetic imagination looked at that and said, oh, no. Oh, no. This is God's do-over. Yay. This is God taking our life and saying everything that has gone before does not have to determine now what is going to happen in the future. We get to start over. Who's with me? Come on. This is a day of joy, not a day of sadness. This is a day when all that has come before has been put away, and now what remains in front of us is the new thing God wants to do. So if you have your Bible still open, I just want to show you what happens here. In verses 1 through 4, the prophet with his prophetic imagination says, Hey, God is giving his people a brand new start. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to anoint that, or to pronounce that, to proclaim that. Verses 5 through 7 that we didn't read is really, if you read it this week, is a vision for the future, a a vision of a future of blessedness. They'll no longer be viewed as, as the people who live in rubble, but they'll be called priests of the Lord, people who know the Lord so well and have been redeemed by the Lord that they can now represent the world to God, and they can represent God back to the world. And then this is really cool. In verses 8 and 9, the prophet's been talking, inspired by God, and in verses 8 and 9, as though God says, is it okay if I say something here? And the prophet says, oh, yeah, sure, cool. go ahead, Yahweh. Um, And God says, I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and dishonesty. I'll give them their wage. But God makes promises in verses 8 and 9 that he will fulfill this covenant that he has made with them. As the prayer that we saw in Thessalonians that I pray so often says, essentially this one who has started this good work, he is faithful and he will not stop until it's finished. And then verses 10 and 11 are rightly then now the people who started in weeping and sadness and kicking rocks around, not thinking there's any future, now sing with joy. And there's a response of joy from the people because now they realize, oh yes, God has not abandoned us. This is now God's do-over and we have a hope and a future moving into life. It's why this text becomes so critical then in Luke. As we will see next week, we'll look at an early text from Luke next week, the wonderful birth narratives of Luke, Mary singing about this one that she is carrying who's going to make all things new. And when Jesus begins his ministry in Luke, he begins to do amazing things, and his hometown hears about these amazing things that our hometown kid is doing. But then he comes back home to Nazareth, comes to the synagogue as was his custom, and I always kind of imagine as he comes in, they all say, oh, boobala, and they pinch his cheeks. So glad you're here. Read the text for us today. Jesus goes to the wall, receives the scroll, unrolls the scroll, comes right to Isaiah 61, reads these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news, release to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, puts it back in the wall, sits down, having read this amazing revolutionary text to people now in the first century looking for a do-over. And they look at him, and I always think synagogue life was mainly about arguing. So I always think, in this moment, they expected Jesus to say something like, when do you think the year of the Lord's favor will come? And somebody can say, when the Romans are dead. (laughs) Grab a sword. The eyes of all are fixed on him. They can't believe that's the revolutionary text that he chose. And then he says the craziest thing. Today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. That sermon went so well for a while and then went so bad in a hurry. We don't have time to talk about that part today. But Luke narrates the entire ministry of Jesus as the one who comes and gives people a do-over. Set them free from the bondage of things that have held them captive. And this is the year of the Lord's favor. Jubilee has come. The past no longer matters. It's God's future that now determines all things. And so as we think about jubilee and and the prophetic imagination, I want us to recognize this morning that jubilee is spiritual. However... It is also concrete, material, and economic. Jubilee is spiritual. However, it is also concrete, material, and economic. I don't want to dismiss the spiritual aspect of the jubilee that Jesus proclaims in the lives of people for part, an important part of jubilee is that the grace of God speaks into the lives of people That God does not hold our sin against us. That as we love to sing, His grace is greater than our sin. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. (laughs) That took a wretch like me and gave me a Jubilee, a do over, made all things new. And so please hear me, I I don't want to dismiss that. But I don't think we take Jubilee seriously enough if we just proclaim it and proclaim the part of it that is about setting things right with God, and we miss out on how revolutionary Jubilee is. For I'm convinced that if all Jesus's ministry in Luke was about, was about going around to people and saying, you know your sins, they're forgiven. It's okay. God is not your enemy, God is your father. God has mercy on you. I do not think Jesus would have been crucified. That message is not all that offensive. I promise you, I will not get bad emails for preaching that. Jesus got crucified because he (laughs) encountered blind people, and he didn't say to them, oh, your sins are forgiven you. He healed them of their blindness. He didn't say to the paralytic, tough luck, dude. Bad things happen. But your sins are forgiven. No, <laughs> Here's the deal, your sins are forgiven and get up off that mat and go walk. Lepers who have been excluded from the community are healed and welcomed back into the community. Tax collectors who have violated the very trust of who we are as a people are not only forgiven but welcomed to the table of fellowship. Christ gets in trouble not for proclaiming forgiveness of sins. The Pharisees weren't super excited about that, but it was not just that. It was the fact that he is taking these people who have been excluded and he's bringing them back into wholeness of life and that is upheaving everything. Because we are not in trouble when we proclaim forgiveness of sins. We are in trouble when we say, it is time for all things to be made new. For people who have no future to have a future. And that's why Jubilee is is concrete, material, and economic, and and why it's difficult, costly, and risky. For things to be made new in our homes, and in our lives, and our communities, is hard work, and it's challenging, And it takes incredible risk. So I was thinking about using an illustration this week. And then I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. And now I think, yeah, I'm going to do it. But I'm going to give a caveat here and say, this is an illustration. And illustrations are not worthy of emails. Um, Because I'm just, I'm not talking here. I'm just talking. But I've been fascinated by a conversation, in part because of the other part of my life. I've been fascinated with a conversation about, in this transition of administrations, will the next administration, one of the thoughts is, in a time where there's economic stimulus needed, will they forgive student loan debt? Right? And so there's talk about, maybe we'll forgive student loan debt up to $10,000, or maybe up to $50,000, or maybe just all of it. And what's fascinating to me is not, and please, I'm, the, that may be a great idea, that may be a stupid idea, but it's a kind of jubilee idea, right? We're agreeing? It's forgiving somebody their debts? But what's fascinating is to read articles about how irritated and angry it makes people to think about it. For some people think, well, it's a good idea, but it's not enough, or it's a good idea, but it helps the wrong people. Or it's a terrible idea. All it does is foster making bad choices for the rest of one's life. Or me, who's already paid off my student loans, there is nothing in this for me. (laughs) The stupidest poll I saw this week was, they polled people who had student loan debt, and 97% of them were in favor of this idea. No way. My first question was, who are the knucklehead 3%? There are people who have like two payments left, right? shockingly, people without student loan debt, that's not their favorite idea. So again, keep your emails. But what the point is simply this. It has a kind of jubilee aspect to it, but even thinking about it makes us realize, oh, man, like that's costly. Worst of all, and this is the problem with grace, it's really not fair. Older brother of the prodigal. It's difficult and costly and risky. It's difficult to think through all of its implications. But Jubilee requires instruments, a people who have the God given ability to see others through the lens of hope. Let me say that again Jubilee requires instruments, a people who have the God-given ability to see others through the lens of hope. Part of what I want you to see in this text is there's a side of this text that says it's such good news if we are people with great debts and who need a do-over to hear the proclamation of good news of grace in our lives. But part of what this text is about is about a prophet Who has been empowered by the Spirit to not see Jerusalem as a pile of rubble, but to have the eyes inspired by God to see the new thing that God is doing in Jerusalem, to see through the lens of hope. And it's nice to have people around you who see reality well. I'm not sure you need the the Spirit of the Lord to see reality well. Some of you are really good at seeing reality. I'd love to even include that in the chat page today or the chat section today. Seeing reality, seeing what is wrong with the world does not require the Spirit of God. What is required for the Spirit to do is to give us Divinely empowered eyes to be able to see those who can only see themselves as broken, but we are able to see and proclaim into them the reality of God's new creation work in them. It's why I love this language of new creation, and not just because it fits well with our alphabet. And not just because NCC works well with it. But I'm obsessed with this idea of the new creation because Genesis begins with creation and Revelation ends with the, recreation, with the recreation, the creation made new. And I love that the new creation is connected to the reality of who we are. It's not just about getting us out, but it's about taking what is and making it transformed. And I love that... The new creation is an invitation for us to be empowered to see and to participate in God's desire to take what is broken and make it his, make it transform. I think I've shared with you in the past that I, I don't watch a lot of reality television. Um, I don't know what, what the issue is for me. The voices are nice. That's, that's good to hear see, people sing well. Um, the baking stuff is kind of cool, right? That's kind of cool. I don't really care who's in that mask. (laughs) I've I've survived without survivor. Um, I'm not worried about who's going to get the rose next week or whatever. Like, that's just not been my interest. But there is one form of reality television that sucks me in. And it's that whole HGTV kind of stuff. And it's not because I'm good at any of it. In fact, that may be why I'm, I like it. But I love those shows where they're able to kind of flip things over, where they're able to make stuff. I mean, I, I do think Chip and Joanna Gaines, they're amazing, right? And what I think is amazing is Joanna Gaines' ability to walk into a really bad house and go, well, if we just take out this wall here and lift the ceiling here and we put shiplap everywhere, everything will be great, right? And then Chip has the ability to do it. It's incredible, Right? But my favorite of those shows was the show Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Do you remember that one? It was on ABC for a while. But what was cool to me about that show was they would find a family who had been through some kind of trauma or had something had happened in their family. And one of the things that would really help them and bless them would be for their home to be reworked. Sometimes it was because somebody had been through an accident. and Now they needed the whole house to be handicap accessible or some other kind of some other kind of need like that. But what I loved about the show is they would take that family and send them on vacation. And then they would get to work, right? And they would just tear everything out and they'd put all this new stuff in and they would just have so much fun creatively destroying these people's homes and just doing all this cool stuff. But then my favorite part of the show was always at the end, they would bring the family back, but they would make a big poster of what the house used to look like and they would make them stand in front of that so that they couldn't see what had happened. And so they'd stand there and they'd say, well, talk to us about how was your trip, you know? What were you kind of hoping would happen for your house? Well, you know, we are hoping. And then they would take that poster and they'd go, are you ready? And they'd pull that thing back. And these people would stand there and just even the yard looked cool. They hadn't even gone up the sidewalk and they're already crying. And they open the door and they get to see all the new entryway and bathtubs and ceiling fans and to all the stuff. That, and they just sob as they go through the house, right? Like it's such a good show. I would just sit there and cry. I think this is so good. Tell them what a mess our life is. Tell them to come. <laughs> so great. And what that show always reminds me of is that there is... There's so much joy in receiving the new. There's so much joy. The good news is that the mess that we have made of our life and our world does not have to have the last word, as I say so often. There's so much joy that comes when everything is made new. But here's what this show, here's what I love, was not just those who were receiving the joy of receiving the newness. It was the joy that you could see in the faces of those who got to do this for a living. Like, how fun is that? How fun is it to get to be the people who say, Are you ready? Here's what we imagine for you in life. Oh, what joy to have the ability to see what that person's life and their home could be and then be able to speak that into existence. Brothers and sisters, Good news today, and the reason we light the candle of joy today is because God loves us too much to let the rubble of Jerusalem, the sin of our lives, have the final word. He keeps working to make us new, and if you're here this morning or online this morning and your life is a mess, the good news is God is really good at etch-a-sketches, giving them a good shake and proclaiming a year of the Lord's favor and giving us do-overs. And not just spiritual ones, but ones that change our relationships, change our reality, change our future in the world, change communities, change nations. And there's something so good about that. But what I most want you to hear this morning is it's okay to be a person who's good at doing reality checks. We don't really need the Spirit of God to do that. What our world needs most today are people gifted by the Spirit to have a prophetic imagination. And can I say thanks for some of the leash that you have given us? Um, it was fun to preach this sermon just a little while ago at Middleton. It is a joy for me to get to be part of that community and say, we don't get to do, <laughs> it would be great to do like this instantaneous reveal, the complete home makeover. Um, but God is doing new things there and, and it's so fun to speak imagination of what God might do in that place by his grace. And it's so much fun to get to do that with you here. it does not take the spirit of god to assess reality but how desperately our world today needs people with the god inspired eyes to see those the world has pushed aside and proclaimed worthless done no hope no future, nothing good ahead. And to be able to be the instrument through which God proclaims beloved child of God great hope and future, new creation. (laughs) For there is joy in becoming a new creation. But there is often also joy today in getting to be the vessel through whom the new creation is announced in the lives of people. Would you pray with me? I'd like to pray a kind of prayer for joy upon us today. Almighty God, you have invited us to run toward joy, to endure for the sake of your joy, to weep now knowing that joy is coming. Our joy like yours is found in a world set right, That joy does not come easily, it comes through labor pains. It is received through suffering. It is waited for with patience. We rejoice that Christ is making all things new. We rejoice that because Christ suffered, sin and death have been defeated. We rejoice in expectation of the great wedding feast. Forgive us for our tendency to complain and not rejoice. Deliver us from the temptation to become cynical and despondent. Help us discern between eternal joy and temporal pleasure. May our joy draw others to you. And may our joy not be complete until all others share in the joy of your reconciling love. And all God's people said,